Amen. Great to be with you today on this Father's Day, and happy Father's Day to all of you. It's great to be able to celebrate fathers. It's greater to be a father and to be celebrated, so glad we could be together today to do that. You know, psychologists tell us that a huge part of our personal identity is connected to how we remember our fathers, which is, for some of us, that might be kind of scary. Um, For others, it may be reinforcing. But see, remembering your father, your father is the root of who you are. You, if it weren't for your father, you wouldn't exist. And so fathers have a huge impact on how we see ourselves based on how we see them. And sometimes that's challenging or difficult as well. But I thought today in order to honor the memory of fathers, it would be helpful for us to look at some outstanding examples. And I thought, who are the perfect fathers in the Bible? I was hard-pressed to find any, but I thought, what more logical place to look than Hebrews 11? Hebrews chapter 11, what we typically call the Hall of Faith. (coughs) It's the list of people from the Old Testament and the history of Israel who had a profound impact because of their belief in God and their willingness to make faith decisions at critical moments throughout their lives and their decisions affected everyone after them. So I thought, let's look at some of the dads in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 and see what we can learn about fatherhood. So turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. There are a lot of people listed in Hebrews 11. We won't look at every one of them. Some of them were women. Some of them were men that, as far as we know, didn't have children. Um, But let's just take a look at a few of the prominent ones. The first one that I want to call your attention to is in Hebrews 11, verse 7. This man, Noah. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. It's hard to imagine a guy who was in a more critical position than this guy Noah. The world had become so immoral. It had become so damaged that God was thinking about just wiping everything out and starting over. But he found one guy, Noah, who was righteous. One good guy on the face of the earth. And Noah's job was to build an ark. And as he built it for decades and preached to people, trying to convince them to join up with him, in the end, when he got on the ark, he saved Humanity by saving his own family, his wife, his three sons, their wives, and a bunch of animals. And that was it. And that became the continuation of humanity in the world as we know it, according to the book of Genesis. Now, if you were one of Noah's sons, you really hit the jackpot when it came to dads. That your dad was the one guy that God said, I'm going to save all of humanity through you. Now, for every one of us, 
if we could trace back according to the Bible, if we could trace back our roots, they go back to this one guy and this singular act of rescuing humanity, um, you know, and, uh, you know, his sons were the recipient of that. So in a sense, Noah is the father of all of us. But Noah was especially the father of Ham, Sham, and Japheth. So, like I say, I'm sure they appreciated it. But what happens in the story when you read it in Genesis is after Noah gets off the ark, he pretty soon plants a vineyard. And then as he begins to harvest the grapes, he ends up making wine and getting drunk. Now, people will say, well... He didn't understand the environmental changes. and he, But come on, when you're getting drunk, you can kind of tell it's happening. Hey, I'm drinking this, and all of a sudden, my wife looks better. I'm funnier. I'm, like, you know something's happening. And so he gets drunk until he passes out drunk in his tent. And his sons... One of his sons had a son, so one of his grandsons um, named Canaan goes into Noah's tent and thinks it's funny to goof around with him. And it says that he uncovered his grandpa's nakedness. Now, when the Bible talks about uncovering nakedness, it has nothing to do with nakedness. That's a euphemism for doing something immoral. Now, think about this. All of humanity was wiped out because of immorality. And now you save this little segment of society. And one of the first things that happens is the father of us all gets drop dead drunk and he's molested by his grandson. And it's an ugly chapter, but the Bible records it and tells it. Now, what happened? Why did we wipe out the whole rest of the earth only to have this happen almost immediately like Did you accomplish anything at all? The worst thing is, though, that Canaan's dad, Ham, looked at it and starts pointing and saying how funny it was. So who did you save and why? Now, when Noah finally woke up, he realized what had happened. His other two boys had graciously backed into the tent with a blanket and and covered up their dad which was an honorable thing to do. But when Noah wakes up, he is like furious because he realizes he kind of knew what was happening, but he really wasn't in a condition to stop it. So then what does he do? He curses his son for allowing this to happen, and he curses his grandson on through all of his generations. Wow. I mean, father of the year gets drunk, gets molested, ends up cursing his own... We don't have a bunch of people here yet, Noah. How did this happen? Why did this happen? At least for a third of his descendants, they would understand we have been cursed because of what the great Noah did in response to something that an innocent kid supposedly actually did. So it's a sketchy world's greatest father story for sure, but... We'll give him credit. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for him. Moving on to the next person we're going to look at in verse 8. The guy that, that the author of Hebrews, I believe it's Paul, but 
here in the Hall of Faith, the guy that he talks about more than anyone else probably is Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. This was a huge deal. Abraham's living in Ur, comfortably, family, relatives everywhere, things are fine, probably has a good job, nice, nice home. God tells him, I want you to leave all of this and go towards the Mediterranean to a place that's going to be hostile, but I'm taking you there. And he was willing to pick up everything. Maybe some of you, you look back on your parents or your grandparents who were in one place of the world, and they decided to pick up everything and migrate to another place. takes great courage to do something like that, and he did. But he goes on and says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. He was considered a foreigner there, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. Talks about Sarah then becoming pregnant at an old age and going through all of that. And then in, down in verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son to whom it was in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So Abraham's our next perfect father. And all of the Jewish people and all of the Arab people look back on Abraham as being their father. He's the one, that's where it happened. Now, for sure, Abraham was a godly guy, a courageous guy. Abraham was someone who was loyal to his family. You see the way he took Lot with him and protected him. And There's much to honor about Abraham, for sure. But when you read the story that the Bible tells us about him, he had his moments. Two different times, Sarah, who was very beautiful as his wife, even as she was older, when they would go to a land where there was a local ruler, they saw Sarah, and first time was in Egypt, and they're like, wow, she's hot. And he goes, oh, my sister? And they would take his wife slash sister, and then God would somehow intervene. I don't know, if you're a kid thinking about your dad, that isn't the type of thing that makes you super proud of your dad. Not only that, his, his probably his greatest accomplishment for which he is most known for, well, being willing to sacrifice his son because he thought God told him to. Now, for us, we look at that story, we know how it ends, it's going to be a picture of Jesus being sacrificed, it's great. How do you think Isaac remembered that story? Man, remember when dad thought he was supposed to sacrifice me, but he didn't tell me? He made me carry the stinking wood, walking all the way up to be sacrificed, never told me what was going on. If God hadn't bailed me out, I'd be dead today. Thanks, dad. Happy Father's Day. You know, it, was, it would be a hard thing for him. But he got through it okay and got, seemed to get over it. But what if you were Abraham's oldest son, you know? Abraham had a son before Isaac. What if you were that guy, Ishmael? Your mom is a slave of Abraham's, 
Abraham impregnates her and you're born and you are the apple of your dad's eye. And you're growing up as a little toddler and it's like, what could be better than to be the son of Abraham until Isaac is born? And then you are the one that nobody wants. The Sarah hates you, hates your mom. Ends up your dad who, you remember when you were bouncing on his knee? Well, now he sends you away. And what would that feel like? What would that feel like to be the other kid? Not the one who's the chosen one. To be the other one that was just there, but now you're yesterday's news. Now, to be sure, his dad kind of protected him. His dad actually put a blessing on him that he would be the father of a nation. You'd always know that. But man, if you're Ishmael... It's one of the reasons, I think, why Arabs are bitter against Israel to this day. Because it's like, yeah, I became the ugly stepchild when ultimately I was the firstborn. I was the guy that had the right to be the son of Abraham. But you pushed me out and we had to go scratching out a living in the desert because of the way you did me. So... I don't know how Ishmael would celebrate Father's Day or look back on his dad, Abraham, but it might be a mix. And at the very least, I'm not sure Isaac was completely enamored by the way that his dad was. And certainly none of them were proud that dad used to pretend like mom was, you know, his sister so that he could save his own neck. So Abraham, father of the year, I don't know, maybe father of a people, but... If he was your dad, you might have a heart. You might have a little issue on Father's Day just going, I don't know, man, Dad, I I can't forget that you sent me out into the wilderness. So let's keep reading. The next guy I want to call your attention to in verse 23 is Moses. Moses was kind of the father of the nation of Israel in a way. Israel is called the children of Israel. Israel was Jacob after he changed his name. But in reality, what Jacob did He had his sons and ended up leading them into captivity, ultimately. They were starving. They go down to Egypt. Joseph was there and helped them out. But it led to 400 years of captivity. So at that point, children of Israel, it doesn't mean much. But when God raised Moses up, now it's like, here's somebody after 400 years that can set us free from the only existence we've known which is slavery by faith verse 23 Moses when he was born was hidden three months by his parents you can question whether it's the greatest idea to take a brand new baby put him in a basket and float him off into the water but it says by faith Moses when he became of age refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. I mean, that's pretty true, and yet the reason why he left Egypt was because he had killed a guy and didn't want to get caught, and so he took off and spent his first 40 years being spoiled in Egypt, spent his next 40 years wandering and tending sheep in the desert, By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Well, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover 
and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith, well, now it goes into Jericho, and that was after he was gone. So Moses, considered by many, many people the father of the children of Israel, really. He's the one who led them out of Egypt with all kinds of signs and wonders. He's the one who led them across the Red Sea. He's the one who goes up into Sinai and receives the Torah, shares the law with the people. He's the one who cried out and God sent water from a rock, who prayed and manna came to feed them. He led them in the wilderness for 40 years. They survived. The nation survived. And that was pretty amazing. They go from slaves for 400 years to people who are at least free in the desert. So you can understand why the people of Israel considered Moses as Father Moses. But when you read the story, you forget that actually Moses was a father literally as well. So how did it look for his kids? He had two boys that we know of. Moses had married a Gentile woman, pagan really, and had two kids. But when it was time for him to deliver Israel, he sent his wife and his little boys back to her dad. He said, you guys get out of here. Daddy's got work to do. And he essentially went to work for a long time where they weren't hearing of him, seeing anything from him. They couldn't be a part of everything that he was doing. As all of Israel, including countless kids, are crossing the Red Sea, his kids aren't even there. They're hiding back at their grandpa's house just to be safe. How do you think they felt when they saw that the children of Israel considered Moses to be Papa Moses, but they're like, he's actually our dad. Ultimately, his, their grandpa brought their mom and them to Moses when he's out in the wilderness after he's already setting things up, gets the law and everything else. And now they're back and probably thought this will be cool. But then their mom has this weird fight with Moses, apparently over the fact that, you know, she didn't want to circumcise the boys. They were big boys by this time. And, but everybody was supposed to get circumcised. And the scripture tells us that in Exodus that God was about to kill Moses because of this. And so his wife got so upset, she violently performed the circumcision and slammed the results at Moses' feet. That probably didn't endear the boys to their dad. Like, this is, we're finally with dad, great father Moses, and we're his kids. And this is weird. This is strange. And then to realize, and there's just no way to fathom what it's like to see two million people who think your dad is their father, and he's actually your father, and he doesn't have that much to say with you, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Doesn't say much about his own two boys at all. And then it got weirder because as Moses began to set things up, who did he promote? Their cousins. The sons of Aaron got all kinds of privileges as, as priests in this new established 
faith system of, of the law. And was there any place for the sons of Moses? Not really. Nope. Your cousins, they're the ones. They're going to carry on the legacy. So we can all celebrate Moses. They'd be back in Egypt as slaves had he not done what he did. But don't you think on Father's Day, Moses' kids might be, yeah, I'm glad you guys love Father Moses, but he wasn't that much of a father to us. All you have to do is read about everything that he wrote about us in five books of the Bible, and there's almost nothing there. So again, great man. God used him incredibly. Father of the year? Perfect father? I don't think so. Not picking on him, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, sorry. Somebody after first service said, would you consider yourself an iconoclast? You're going, yeah, probably. Sorry to shatter your day. Let's skip down to verse 32. There are several people listed, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. Barak and Samson didn't have kids, but let's consider three of these other guys. Gideon. Gideon was a guy who God used to deliver Israel from the Midianites. But Gideon wasn't the bravest guy around. He was a total daddy's boy. He lived with his dad. He hid behind his dad's skirts. When God called him, God had to keep twisting his arm to get him to do anything. He was far from great if you watched him before God came and called him and even early afterwards. But... In defense of Gideon, he accomplished one of the greatest victories over the Midianites that Israel had ever experienced over any pagan culture. And so, as a result, people loved Gideon. He was, you know, just a complete icon in terms of the odds are stacked against you, and me and 300 guys are going to wipe out this pagan civilization that was enslaving us. So, It was pretty amazing. And in the end, the children of Israel appreciated him so much that they offered him the right to become king of Israel. Pretty amazing. I mean, Israel has always wanted a king. All the other countries had kings, but they hadn't, up until this point, found someone that they thought was really worthy. And I would suggest to you, the greatest thing Gideon ever did was not conquering the Midianites. The most incredibly iconic thing that he chose to do was when they offered him to be the king and told his said, your sons will be king after you. We will establish royalty on down through the ages. And he said, no, you want God to rule you. You don't want me and my kids to rule you. I'm sure his kids were like, wait, dad. I mean, think this through. But it was amazing that he took that step, and it was challenging. And I I think for all of history, how people handle the opportunity for power determines so much of who they are. And so for me, this was his greatest moment, and his kids got to see it. They would never forget it. But then when you read on, Gideon retired. He started making idols. He had a bunch of wives, a bunch of concubines, a bunch of kids, and his best days were behind him at that point. So when you're one of his descendants, you can remember there were a few days when, man, he was killing it. 
After that, he was kind of disgraceful. But here he is listed in the Hall of Faith. A, an impressive man, no doubt about it. A perfect father, far from it. Then it mentions Jephthah. This guy's really one of the most interesting people in the book of Judges. Jephthah was born against all odds. He was born into a family because his father had a family already, but his mother, who was a prostitute, bore him. And so the dad knew this is my kid. So Jephthah is raised with his brothers and sisters, but everyone knowing that he was the illegitimate one. So things were awkward. Kids can be cruel. They began to pick on him more and more and more. And finally, his dad (laughs) sent him away. So Jephthah kind of raised himself out in the wilderness. And as it tells the story of Jephthah, one thing about being rejected in this way and having this bad background, he was one bad dude. He became really, really a tough guy. And he gathered a gang of people around him. And he, Jephthah was like the hell's angels. It's like we're, we have our own standards and we do what we want, but you don't mess with us. And he was like the baddest dude in Israel. And Israel is being harassed by the Ammonites. And they're desperate because nobody even wants to lead the army. And they said, you know what we need? That hell's angels guy, Jephthah. It's time for him to become king and make Israel great again. And so, nobody got in first service either. But So they elect him, and he's like, now are you sure? If I come in and I fight this war, then are you going to throw me out? Then you're going to go, okay, good, thanks. You did what we needed. Now move aside, and we're going to bring someone polite to the throne. So he lays that out there, and they go, no, 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 you'll... You'll stay in charge. Amazingly, it turned out, and a lot of times this is the case, some of the baddest people end up having some of the best hearts. And he grew close to God, and he reached out to him, and he asked for God's help, and he had an amazing victory over the Ammonites. But in the process of it, he, who grew up really fatherless and motherless for the most part, he made a commitment to God, and he said, If you give me this victory, when I get home, the first thing to come out through the front gate, I'm going to sacrifice it to you. Obviously thinking it would be an animal. He comes home and his daughter comes walking out to greet him. And he's like, oh, shoot. But he had the integrity to say, hey, honey, funny thing happened. While I was in the battle, I kind of promised that whatever came out, I would sacrifice, so I don't know, what are you thinking? And she, this is pretty amazing that she's this kind of a girl, that she goes, you know what, Dad? If you promised, I'm fine. I'm all for it. Now, people differ as to whether she was actually going to be sacrificed or whether she was actually sacrificing the right to ever get married, whether she would perpetually be a virgin. To me, I think that's softening. It's easier to live with, but... The reality might be something worse than that. But she said, Dad, just give me a weekend with my girlfriends to go out and mourn my virginity. And we'll go and party, and then we'll do what you told God you would do. Now, 
it's pretty cool that she is like, I'm so proud of my dad. But when she got with her girlfriends, are you kidding me? They're like, what? The kind of guy he is? And why? This isn't right. But she willingly submitted to this. So how would she look at her father, Jephthah? I mean, she should have been, you idiot. Why did you make a dumb promise like that? And then wasn't there some way you could have offered something else as a substitute? But she looked at him and goes, that's my dad. That's what I expected. He wins this incredible battle. He has all the odds against him. And then in the end, he is known for sacrificing, whatever that means, his daughter who he loved. And she submitted to it. Says a lot about both of them for sure. But I'm not nominating him for father of the year. Okay. And then David is listed, King David. David, the greatest of all. David, the guy who wrote the Psalms, who had such a heart for God. He killed Goliath, delivered Israel from from the Philistines and so many of their enemies. He accomplished amazing things. In fact, Jesus in the end, in the last chapter of the Bible, brags about being related to David. So we can certainly look at David and go, amazing guy. He's somebody. So certainly, on Father's Day, we can find one guy who is a perfect father. And yet, when you read the stories of David, he was not a great father. In fact, I don't think any of his kids would say, David was the best dad ever. He, all of his sons, they turned against each other. They killed each other. One of his sons ran him out of the kingdom so that he could take over and take his concubines for his own. And do, I mean, the story of his family was a complete mess. Finally, the guy they fought over who would succeed him as he got older, and the guy who ended up winning, Solomon, wisest man ever, but a guy with you know, a thousand women and all sorts of idols and everything else, Solomon was the son of Bathsheba, who was the married woman that David impregnated and then had her husband murdered so that he could take her as one of his wives. So even Solomon, you'd go, boy, look at your heritage. He could even have a good excuse for like being what he was because, well, I mean, let me tell you something, man. My dad, he wasn't the greatest dad ever. He told me to get wisdom. That's all I can say. Other than that, it was he was great as the leader of the nation. He did a poor job leading our family. And that's David. So we look at all these and you're probably like, why is this even relevant? Well, to me there's something really important in this retelling of the history of the Hall of Faith because these are the icons of history. These are the people who made the biggest difference in Israel and every one of them were deeply, deeply flawed and yet each one of them got into the Hall of Faith because at some point in their lives or in their careers they did something that made a difference. They made a courageous decision. 
a decision of faith where most people would think that what they were choosing to do was stupid, but they were choosing to do it because they believed that it's what God wanted them to be. Great dads, far from it. People who God used, amazingly. Now, what does this have to do with us? Because you might say, well, you know, at least I can relate to this. My dad would fit in with some of the bad stuff that you're talking about. You know, and maybe he would. But how do we look at our fathers? Because as I said in the beginning, how you see your father, how you remember him, has a huge impact because he is the root of who you are, has a huge impact on how you see yourself. So how do you remember your dad? Now for me, I have a lot of really negative memories of my dad. He, was, he could be very cruel. He was um, abusive. He was mentally ill, schizophrenic. And it's easy to remember all the bad stuff. But I think, okay, what if I was going to put my dad in this kind of a lineup? What is there about my dad that I can remember that's honoring, that's, that is, you know, something that's worth admiring. What is it that my dad did that showed, you know, guts, that showed decision-making that was difficult, that shows someone who would courageously do what most people wouldn't do? So I think of my dad as a young man, and World War II started, and he was a great photographer, and he made a deal with the Navy that he would join the Navy to do photography for the Navy. And the deal he made is he would use his own camera equipment and he would own the negatives and he kept them for his whole life. Um, My dad was out there on the deck of ships that were being bombarded with suicide planes and he's the guy on the deck taking the picture of the planes that would take out his ship. This is a guy who had been raised spoiled and he lived that in World War II, lost so many people, wouldn't like most veterans, wouldn't talk about what happened. But I found later all of his pictures, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is pretty amazing. I think of other times. I think of a time when our family was camping, and he told us, everybody in the camper, quick, now. And he had a big stick, and he's like pushing us into the camper. We get in the camper and we look out the window and there are three huge mountain lions that are stalking, surrounding my dad. And my dad's poking at them. And I'm looking out the window and I'm like, this is like the bravest person I've ever seen in my life. And he ends up chasing them away. Another time my dad and I are hiking up to the top of Half Dome and and a, a rattlesnake, I was like six, and a rattlesnake was like a foot away from me and he killed it. And he cut the rattle off and gave it to me for a toy to shut me up while, while I'm hiking. I'm like, that's pretty amazing. In the end, when I was like in sixth grade, my dad, who was in and out of mental hospitals and everything, he finally left. And I think, how hard was it for him to leave? And yet, I think deep down inside, he understood. This was something that was best for him and best for us. He continued to work hard and try to provide for us the best he could. He lived out the rest of his life living in campers and trailers and reading the Bible constantly. 
And I still have a love for the Bible because my dad, like, gave me that. And I even appreciate that he was willing to make the tough decision to take off rather than continue to make our lives miserable. So I can honor his memory without justifying any of the bad things. You remember with all these guys in Hebrews 11, the Bible doesn't hide all the stuff I told you about. You look at it honestly and truthfully, but here's what's left as you look back. When were the moments that they did something defining that went against convention that most people wouldn't do, but when they had the courage to do what they believed they were supposed to do? Well, how can you remember someone like that? First of all, why would you want to remember someone like that? Because, like I said in the beginning, they tell us that how I see myself is intimately connected to how I see my father. And so, from a practical standpoint, I cannot have a healthy view of myself till I have the healthiest view of my father that I can possibly have. And I believe it's why we have Hebrews 11. But you might go, well, you don't know my dad. I can't think of anything. Think harder. The way that you can look at your dad in this way is something that we call grace. Is an ability to be able to look at the picture and understand that I can show grace to others because I desperately need grace myself. Jesus came to present grace to us. Before Jesus, you'd look at the history and it was the Old Testament. Mostly failure. Jesus comes along and now you have Hebrews 11 where I am able to take the grace of God and apply it to my own ancestry and understand that it wasn't all bad. And if it wasn't all bad, then there's a thread of good that's there and sometimes that's all it took. For most of these heroes, their greatness could be measured in days, in a few decisions can we look at those who came before us with the same grace? It's important that we intentionally remember them by those days when they made the tough decisions, when they did what they felt was right, when they went against what other people thought they should have done. Those are the defining moments. And in the end, with grace, that's what's left when you get to Hebrews 11. That's what's left when you get to the final analysis. It helps if we show grace to ourselves as well because we can remember being less than perfect. But were there times when you did something courageous? You're in good company. I would encourage us on this Father's Day to remember our fathers with grace, to remember our fathers for the moments of strategic greatness of those decisions that were made that made a difference and that causes us to have our existence today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these reminders that there are no perfect fathers except you. But that because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we can experience and show your amazing grace 
And when we do, we don't distort reality. We magnify and clarify your grace and your faithfulness to us and through those who came before us. May we celebrate with the eyes of grace today. In Jesus' name, amen.